What? It's 9.30 here. We're going to get started. Everybody kind of make their way to their seat here. We'll get started.
I don't think there's anybody else coming. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and uh, then we'll move into here. Um, whenever we get done here in just a second, you want to open your uh, Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. That's where we're going to read from to start our lesson today. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together today um, to just think about your word and what it means to us, God, and how we should live it out in our lives. God, I pray that you would um, just bless this time, that you would allow my words to be fruitful, that you would allow our thoughts to be fruitful to you, Lord, that we would measure the things that we learn about against the word of God. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 23. This is going to have to do with uh, the last chapter here. What then? Are we better than they? So this is a... <clears throat> Paul has just finished... Or <clears throat> kind of wrapping up or concluding a section on the sinfulness of all men. He starts out by t uh, showing that Gentiles and Jews are both condemned by God for their sinful actions because our hearts are wicked. <clears throat> That's what's leading into this. And he kind of puts a, <clears throat> by quoting the psalm here, he puts an exclamation point on the point that he's been trying to make. What then? Are we better than they, that is Jews? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who, seek after, who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have, all, they have together become, become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all of the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So according to this passage, just to start us out here before we get into chapter 12... What is true of human nature? What is true of human nature? It's fallen and dead in sin. So when we, when we think about deadness, deadness in sin, what, is, what does deadness mean? Is, is, the, is the infection of sin, is it partial or is it total? It's total, according to this passage. Did you notice there are none who seek after righteousness? No, not one. So naturally speaking, is there any man whose heart 
desires God in and of itself? No. The answer to that is no from a Christian perspective. So sin does not just infect some of our actions, thoughts, and emotions, but all of them together. Without the corrective word of the word of God, we therefore have no ability to discern right from wrong in, in for it to be, at least for it to be pleasing to God. Of course, <clears throat> non-Christians can discern right from wrong because of them being made in the image of God, but we have no ability to please God, okay? To bring an offering or a sacrifice to Him of praise that's worthy of Him, that can only be done in Christ. So that's true of human nature. Now, this last chapter, we're going to try to relate this to this last chapter. The standpoint question, chapter 12. Does our vision of social justice turn the quest for truth into an identity game? So our identity, we have to look to the Bible to, to define our identity, right? So our identity is, is that we were made in image bearers of Christ, that in Adam we have all fallen and sinned. So our identity is defined by what right now as a non-Christian, if we are uh, talking about the world, our identity is defined by what we are not. And that is we are not able to please God. We are only able to displease God without Christ. Okay, that's the identity that we have to uh, keep hold of. In speaking of this idea... The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 25, says this. It says, Wherein consists the sinfulness of the estate whereinto man fell? Okay. It says, the, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, that means the lack thereof, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. That is the nature of humanity. That is the definition of what it means to be without Christ. And that is true of every single person born in the world until they express faith. Okay, so we need to compare that to what we're going to read in this chapter about the standpoint question. It's much of this we've kind of already covered, but this is a good chapter overall. So on, page, on chapter 12, page 151, it says, Tribes thinking very first paragraph there, tribes thinking can make us see things that aren't there and miss things that are. And keep in mind what we just talked about. It can elevate lived experience in ways that make oppression worse. It can also make its own conclusions unfalsifiable by turning the quest for truth into an identity game. We must first understand what philosophers mean by the clumsy term unfalsifiable. If no amount of logic, evidence, experience, or scripture could possibly change our outlook, then our beliefs are unfalsifiable. So according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, unfalsifiable is defined as this. It's incapable of being proved false. Incapable of being proved false. Now, mind you, this is not true. This is a perception. Okay, this is a perception. And this is very true of social justice in general. So 
unfalsifiable, cannot be argued against because its epistemic framework, and I'll explain what I mean by that, is completely subjective. So, in other words, since my truth is my truth, and you have not experienced my truth, then therefore you cannot deny my truth. Does that make sense? Since my truth is constructed subjectively by me, there is no standard, then because you have not, as a person or individual, experienced the same things that I have experienced, you cannot deny that my truth is true truth. (laughs) Okay? Does that make sense? I know that's a lot of word, word salad there, but I want, that to, I want that to sink in because this is the fundamental issue with social justice. It has no, what I mean by epistemic is epistemological or way of knowing truth. It has no foundation or objective standard to which to point. We've been saying that the whole time. And this is, what, this is why their ideology is in a sense unfalsifiable. It's like a phantom you can never catch. It's like Peter Pan trying to catch his shadow. Okay, you can never come to a point where you can actually pin it down. Why? Because I, I have not lived the same life that you have. Nor have you lived the life, same life that everyone else has. We need something outside of ourselves, right? We need something outside of ourselves in order to define what humanity is, what it is not, and what we need in light of that, Okay. So that's why I read those first questions, because this, that sentence, that idea of no amount, this is important, that sentence, last sentence in that second paragraph, I'm sorry. If no amount of logic, evidence, or experience, or scripture could possibly change our outlook, then our beliefs are unfalsifiable. There's nothing, because it's completely subjective. Let's flip over a page here. I'm going to read a long portion of scripture, or long, not scripture, long portion of this book here. It says, this is about halfway down page 152. A good belief system, unlike that of our unfortunate traveler, he gives an example, but I just kind of wanted to explain that in my own words, can spell out ways in which it could be proved false. Take Christianity, for example. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if Jesus died, and stayed dead, if his bodily resurrection turned out to be a legend or hoax, then the Christian faith would crumble into falsehood. By contrast, tribes' thinking comes complete with programmed responses that safeguard its core beliefs from any system-crashing virus of contrary evidence, anything that opposes it. Pre-programmed responses. If a man tries to say a pre-born human being is more than a clump of cells then the tribe's OS quickly generates the response, no womb, no say, or my body, my choice. A white woman attends a conference on peacemaking where she is informed that her whiteness is wicked. If she disagrees, the tribe's OS says she suffers from white fragility. Best-selling race educator Robin DiAngelo, who coined the term, clarifies that white fragility can be identified by defensive emotions like feeling judged, Actions like denying, or words like, I disagree. So everything that you would say in opposition, in other words. Yes, simply saying, I disagree, is evidence of white fragility. A white scholar questions the social justice B narrative of, a vast system of, va- of the vast system of racism. She is seen as proving her own racism. 
protecting her privilege and complicit in white supremacy. If she, if she uses logic and evidence, then she is using white constructs like logic and evidence to oppress or erase people of color. Black scholars write dozens of books with rigorous evidence that challenges the social justice B narrative. The tribe's OS neatly files them away under internalized racism. And I mentioned this before, but this is the response to black people who would disagree with the social justice um, narrative, perhaps even labeling them race traitors, coons, Oreos, or coconuts for being black on the outside and white on the inside. This is common. It's very common. <clears throat> None of these examples are fictional, nor are they uncommon. If you spend much time on the digital battlefields of social media, which I don't recommend, you know that this style of thinking has skyrocketed in recent years. Sixty years ago, under this way of modernism, ideas were typically criticized in the West if they lacked evidence. Ten to twenty years ago, as postmodernism broke mainstream, ideas were criticized not so much because they lacked evidence, but because they lacked, quote, tolerance. If a view claimed to be the truth instead of a truth, it was dismissed as intolerant. Yet that in and of itself is a statement of a truth, right? You can't get away from it. <laughs> it's the way that God has built language. As today, as we have entered what I have called the postmodern era, the post-postmodern era, it is not a lack of evidence or a lack of tolerance, but a lack of melanin or a lack of second, the second X chromosome that makes one's, someone's ideas wrong. In other words, if, you are, if your skin is white or you're a male, you cannot speak truth because whiteness is a normative standard and an ideological God that we uphold by, and by necessity that causes us to oppress others, right? Same thing with being a male, even though women make up more of the population than men do as a statistical fact, okay? <clears throat> says, critics will point to my melanin, gender, sexual orientation, economic status, or faith to attack the ideas I am setting forth. Notice that they're not attacking the ideas, okay? They're attacking things associ they associate with the ideas. This is a common tactic of, the le of, of leftist thinking. I wouldn't have people in general, to be honest. Anytime you get in a debate with someone, they're, they're very likely, if they do, don't, do not agree with you and do not have the ability to intellectually interact with what you're saying, they'll attack you rather than the idea. It's very common. <clears throat> Everybody following me so far? Okay. Any basic logic te text <laughs> would tell us that attacking people for their personal traits or perceived motives instead of their ideas themselves is a fallacy known as an, odd, an ad hominem attack. Latin for to the person. Instead of seriously engaging the ideas we disagree with, which requires mental energy, we can simply shift the focus to the person, citing skin tone or gender or assuming bad motives, which requires no mental energy. You disagree with me? Clearly you are motivated by hate, bigotry, phobia, white supremacy, and, or white fragility. The problem, with which, the problem with such tribes thinking is that it erases the creator-creature distinction, assuming we have x-ray vision into others' hearts and omniscience about people's true motives that only God has. This is the inevitable trajectory of these ideas. Because you are the arbiter of truth, you are God. You are God. This is, this is, 
this is what is the inevitable conclusion of a secularist way of thinking. The human themselves becomes the autonomous arbiter of all things that are true and not true. Okay? You can't produce anything else. This is the fruit of that belief. <clears throat> it manifested itself in different ways in making false gods out of wood and gold and other things. In the Old Testament, we see it repeatedly. Now it manifests itself in the forms of individual uh, religion, in a way. My, think about this. Each individual person, because they are an arbiter of truth, has their, has their own religion with its own tenets, with its own laws, with its own sacrifices, with its own self-government. That's why it's very difficult to talk to people who believe this sort of stuff to this degree. You are not just attacking their ideas. You're attacking their entire person. Okay? Yes? Okay. No. And, and sure. Yeah. And how you see this, he's asked to, just for people on the video, he asked, can two social justice people ever kind of come together and see themselves as, as fighting the same cause? Ultimately, no. And here's why. He, yeah, ultimately, no, and here's why. And you actually see this played out in feminism right now and the transgender arguments, okay? The left will eventually eat itself. It can't actually build anything because truth is so subjective in this way of mindset. Um, when a male who claims to be a female is named woman of the year, uh, like Bruce Jenner was, um, there are simultaneously women who promote who hate males who promote feminist ideology who look at that as a rightfully as a usurping of what it means to be a woman okay and you're going to see this constant back and forth and as you start to read uh this sort of thing you'll see you'll see it more and more because well you may be a male say you're a male who who has dark skin okay you're from, your, uh, you're from the Middle East or you're from Africa or wherever it may be. You do not have as much truth. And say you, you are heterosexual, that you believe that a man and a woman are supposed to be together. Because of those things, because you are male and because you are heterosexual, you do not have as much truth as a homosexual African-American or Middle Eastern woman Okay, who maybe has some other issues of learning or whatever it may be, who may be poor. That is what is called intersectionality, and that's where that comes into play. Each intersection that you pass through of oppression, so whatever is considered a normal idea or a, or a normal standard in society, okay, each intersection you pass away from that makes you a greater, a greater holder of truth. Does that, does that make, I know that doesn't make sense, but does that make sense? <laughs> like, um, yes, but that's legitimately what happens. And this is why they end up eating themselves in that way and why it can only be destructive. Is that because 
Correct. Well, they say that. Yeah, because they've experienced greater and degrees of oppression. Because remember, to be a male is to oppress a woman. To be white is to oppress people who have different color skin. To be a heterosexual is to oppress uh, sodomites and lesbians. Okay? Does that make sense? Like, I know that doesn't make sense, but that is exactly the way that the framework works. So that each inner intersection that you pass through becomes more and more, um, that person becomes more and more a beholder of true truth, even though I would obviously disagree with that. Yes? Yeah, this isn't um, an away sort of thing that's not relevant to every person in this room. Um, and then you, you may have not recognized it for a long time. I didn't, maybe until I mean, what, five, six, seven years ago is when I started to notice it. But the fruit of it and the foundations of it have been laid long for a long time. Okay? So this is, that's, that's what it means. This is, why, <laughs> this is why it's very difficult to quote-unquote catch them and why I say it's more or less a shadow that just keeps disappearing. You can never catch what is actually being talked about. And this is why, fundamentally, Christians cannot give an inch to this sort of thing. Okay? There's no fruitfulness in this. It has zero to offer. Okay? Nothing. Nothing to offer. All right. There, um, it says, the more under the power of tribes thinking we become, the less we will care whether we violate the laws of logic with ad hominem fallacies. Why? Because we are told that objective, rational, linear thinking is a mark of whiteness and that the idea of objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is, specific, is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking. It's just nonsense. Uh, One activist tells us we must accept the grievances of faculty of color without question. And what if we do raise questions? We are inflicting harm for evidence. To ask for evidence of racism is racism with a capital R. It's a quote that he pulls from things. So there's no need for you to seek to please them. Let's just get that out of the way. It's impossible. This is why our country is headed for a a huge divide is because you notice that there is no reconciliation of worldview with this. These aren't pe- this way of thinking is not um, something that you can quote unquote bring back. <laughs> it has to be banished completely, and has you have to start over. The per- a person has to be fundamentally changed for this. This is not the acceptance of a of a what we call as a uh, of a Christian worldview. The ideas of truth and not truth, of lying, of stealing, and those sorts of things that we have experienced most people would believe, even if they weren't Christians. This is a completely different animal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you see, then, how social justice B makes itself unfalsifiable? It shifts our focus from isms to ists, from ideas to people, from evidence to people's external identity markers. 
This is attractive to many. Why? It offers a way to become irrefutable authorities on extremely complex issues. All we have to do is memorize a handful of condemning buzzwords. White fragility, white privilege, male privilege, toxic masculinity, internalized racism, epistemic exploitation, and at no point do we have to do the hard work of engaging any evidence that contradicts our worldview. Why? Because if anyone challenging us, <clears throat> because if anyone challenging us is an oppressor, by definition, then there can be no such thing as a reasonable challenge to our doctrines. You hear that? That's an important sentence. In short, tribes thinking is too easy. We can process ideas as true or false based purely on melanin rather than merit, private parts over persuasiveness, and economic status over evidential substance. Over on the next page might be the best sentence in the whole book. He says on page 155, it's about halfway through the first paragraph, writing off someone's viewpoint because of their melanin levels makes us actual racists. Dismissing someone's argument because of their gender makes us actual sexists. Silencing someone's ideas because of their sexuality, their economic status, or any other quality of their lives, rather than the quality of their ideas, does not make us a voice of justice for the marginalized. It makes us actual bigots. It's probably the best sentence in the whole book, at least in my memory. Okay, best string of sentences or ideas in the whole book. Yeah. Say it again. I'm sorry. Well, that's exactly what the other people do. I only listen to... That is that side, though. He's, it's, both sides are captured there because from the social justice B perspective, I only listen to you because of the melanin in your skin. From the social justice B perspective, I only listen to you because you're a woman. So it would, be, it would go both ways in that way. I think that's what he's actually trying to capture in that very sentence. <clears throat> okay, page 156. <clears throat> this is a really great point here. It's something that I've thought about frequently. Page 156, the second paragraph, it says, There is a related problem with tribes thinking. If old white guys represent... An, oppress an oppressive patriarchy we must abolish, then we may ask, why does so much social justice be doctrine sound so close to the economic theories of Marx, Engels, or Bernie Sanders? Why does it advance Rousseau's vision that institutions, not fallen human hearts, are the source of evil? Why does it often defend the abortion ruling of seven powerful, robed men. Embrace the expressive sexual ethics crafted by Herbert Marcuse and Wilhelm Reich. Espouse an oppressor versus oppressed narrative championed by Antonio, Antonio Gramsci. The all-white male Frankfurt School and the all-white male Frankfurt School employ the deconstructionist tactics invented by Foucault and Derrida. These are all white philosophers. <clears throat> right? And practice the political tactics, tactics of Saul Alinsky. 
It was a, uh, a leftist discipler of Obama, community organizer. <clears throat> These art architects of tribes thinking share something fascinating. They were well-off white guys. The epistemological color game is played in only one direction, namely against those of lighter shades who question the doctrines of social justice. This sort of hypocrisy is a double standard and violates the principle of unequal weights and measures that we've been talking about, right? Further down on the page, but tribes thinking works the other way too. This is talking about atheist, minority, gay, lesbian. It says those on the oppressed side of the equation are often granted automatic authority one way this bit of tribes thinking makes its way into Christian circles is with the oft-repeated mantra that God is on the side of the poor and oppressed. That's certainly true, depending on what we mean. Okay, depending on what we mean. We could mean one of two things. First, it could mean something like I meant two weeks ago when my six-year-old daughter was stung by a bee. My wife and I had special concern for her, not because we love her siblings any less, but because she was especially in pain and in distress. We find such special concern for the poor all over Scripture. God is in such deep solidarity with those in the pains of poverty that the Proverbs say, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, and whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. God speaks judgment against those who cheat the poor. God's law mandates special protections for widows and for orphans. The essence of true religion, according to Scripture, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Philosopher Nicholas Wolster, I'm sorry, Wolterstorff sums up the Scriptures well. God's love for justice is grounded in His love for the victims of injustice. But true injustice, right? Actual oppression. Actual violations of God's law. Not perceived oppression. Not perceived oppression. Okay, so let's make, make sure we get that. Because the words from the social justice B side sound the same, but they don't mean the same things. Okay, they don't mean the same things. It's like Mormonism. They use the name Jesus Christ. They use the name God the Father. They use the name Holy Ghost, but they mean completely different things by them. They mean three different gods, and, the, and depending on what you read, the Holy Ghost could actually just be something equated to the force from Star Wars, not an actual god. They mean that Jesus was born through literal sexual relations with God the Father's celestial wife, and that Jesus is the brother of Satan in the same way. They don't mean the same things, and neither does social justice uh, proponents mean the same things when we talk about the poor and the oppressed and victims of injustice. Victims by scripture standards are not the same as victims by social justice standards, okay? <clears throat> it says, God's love for justice is grounded in his love for the victims of injustice, and his love for the victims of injustice belongs to his love for the little ones of the world, for the weak, the defenseless, the ones at the bottom, the excluded ones, the miscrats, the outcasts, the outsiders. Skip a paragraph. However, God's solidarity with the poor and oppressed in Scripture never means that he elevates their perspective to sacred, unquestionable status. Sin afflicts both the poor and the rich, and both need salvation. 
This is why I read what I read from the, the larger catechism at the beginning, and this is why we read Romans 3, right? We have to have a grounding principle of humanity in order to make us all on a level playing field. Field. Ugh. Playing field. <clears throat> it says, The all of the all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, includes rich, poor, privileged, underprivileged, haves and have-nots. The oppressed in Egypt were hardly infallible, meaning the Israelites. They bowed to the golden calf. The paralyzed man in Luke 5 was far from rich. And Jesus says, Man, your sins are forgiven. God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Any and all includes the oppressed. We all need repentance. God does not suggest but commands that we not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Scripture puts strong standards of evidence for accusations against injustice. We've gone over this, right? How many witnesses did it take before someone could be condemned to death in the Old Testament? At least two, right? At least two. It says two to three. Why is that the case? Because human nature is vindictive, right, and revengeful, and you had to have cooperating evidence from someone outside of that circle in order to be able to condemn a person. Okay? It's almost like God knows the hearts of humanity, <laughs> right? <clears throat> it says we all need repentance. Scripture puts the strong standards of evidence for accusation of injustice. It never encourages to take people's word for it if they claim to be victims of oppression. The Bible is far too realistic about the human potential for deception to let justice rest on such a shaky foundation. The, the biblical quest for injustice is simply incompatible with the social justice be identity game of making truth a matter of social, status, color, or gender. gender. Incompatible. And this last part here is Freddie's story. And I felt I, this is a good, good story um, to end with, I think. Um, it's an app, about a an man from Appalachia. Okay? So this kind of hits home a little bit. It says, I was born in rural Appalachia with flickering electricity and no running water. We bathed in the cool gray shell water of a turn-of-the-century turn metal washtub. We had a two-seat outhouse, as, a, as primitive as any of you have ever seen in a TV western. I've heard people say, we grew up poor, but we never knew it. Well, we knew it, and nobody would let us forget it. Raised by our single mom, my brother and I were, quote, half-breeds, or so we were told. I honestly didn't know what I was except different. My dominant genes drew more melanin. In the rugged mountains of Tennessee, my twin and I were the only people of color. We scored the social justice pariah trifecta, poor, fatherless, and dark-skinned. These factors were immediately evident in visible ways, including my clothing, grooming, vocabulary, and social graces. I suffered daily harassment frequent attacks by young gangs, and verbal terrorism from adults, the piercing stares, nods of dismissive disapproval, and being called every racial pejorative in existence regardless of the inaccuracy of nearly all the terms was a way of life. This is important because I want you to hear that, and I want you to hear how he eventually perceived it by the word of God. 
did he carry a grudge, bitterness, and a chip on his shoulder? Or did he allow God's forgiveness, okay, to color the way that he would look at things? In my early teens, as these forces increasingly impacted me, I met Christ. A divorced white lady reached out to disciple me two hours a week for two years. It was a death knell for her social life. After that, a young white part-time minister discipled me, then later an older white pastor. Then, in my duress, a wealthy white church member provided me with much-needed clothes. Generous white widows in the church helped me pay for, the Christian, for Christian summer camp. Ultimately, God called me to ministry. I ended up going to a majority Anglo-Christian university known for its fundamentalism. I was met with nearly universal support. I was challenged, called to high standards, and expected to perform. You hear how this is opposite? This is a Western white uh, paradigm that social justice P people would be against. Notice how he's taking it, right? He said, I was challenged, called to high standards, and expected to perform. I didn't receive scholarships or anything resembling equal opportunity perks. Instead, I was given dignity, community, and accountability. These imparted me self-respect that was earned. God has been faithful. I became the first in my family to go to college. I served for two decades in pastoral ministry. I have earned a Ph.D. and serve as the dean of both a college ministry school and a graduate theological seminary. I'm an author, a good father, and an, quote, amazing husband. Just ask my wife. Best of all, I have an intimate, personal walk with Jesus. Over the years, I've pieced together the fact that those who wounded me were not racist and bigots because they were white. They were racists and bigots who happened to be white. And growing up as a white kid at a school who had quite a few African Americans going at it and being called names when I was a kid that were associated with my skin color... It's a problem for everyone. It's not just limited to one race. <clears throat> he said, sadly, because of these convictions and the direction of culture under the sway of social justice B, I've had several ironic experiences. Tribal identity has not only infected society, it, has insidiously, it is insidiously working its way into many Christian institutions, including Christian higher education. Christian academics have generally failed to do the hard work of integration. As a result, many are seduced into unbiblical versions of social justice. The shocking twist is this. Although I am a minority who has encountered unmitigated racism in the past, I have become a pariah in many circles. Why? Because I reject today's trending justice ideologies. The intensity of attacks on the people who reject identity-based tribalism has become a spiritual pathology in many Christian institutions. Even so, biblical justice exposes today's social justice as little more than a resounding gong and a, or a clanging cymbal. All right? This is what I wrote. So the friend, this is the conclusion, concluding thought here. The framework necessary to make an opinion unfalsifiable assumes an objective nature within the human heart, which doesn't exist, uplifting our actions, thoughts, and emotions to the place of God. 
However, if we can only look to ourselves as the definer of truth, then we have nothing but sand with which to build our lives. At best, those who do this will continue to lay foundation after foundation, all of which, being built on sand, are doomed to fail. These people are constantly overwhelmed, double-minded, and tossed to and fro by life. At worst, as in the case of proponents of social justice, they will seek to destroy everything they touch, spending all of their energy in an endless rage of self-pity, envy, and strife. Anything which undermines or opposes their hatred of truth, beauty, and the good of God is seen as a threat to their entire existence, making it necessary to destroy these things, forgetting that the fool says in his heart that there is no God in heaven. This is not the way of the Christian. The gospel does tear down, make no mistake, for the law leaves us without excuse or hope if we look to it for our justification. It rightly and justly condemns all those who would attempt of their own will to obey its letter. Thankfully, however, this is not the end of the Christian message. For the law, in the gracious purposes of God, tears us down with the intention of pointing us to the one who has fulfilled all of its requirements on our behalf, our Savior, our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ the Righteous. Every wayward thought corrected, every emotional folly shown for its wickedness, every terrible deed sharply rebuked, and every piece of pride which God so graciously tears out of our lives is a testament to his care for us. Christians must remember the Lord's call to repentance is a purposeful tearing down, for Christ will not fail in the building of the character of himself in us that we may participate in the building of the kingdom for the Father." We as Christians are loved and forgiven, friends who are called to be ambassadors, that is, heralds, of the only message in the world which actually builds upon an unshakable foundation, and that is the finished work of Christ. Always be ready, as we close this book, always be ready to follow the Lord into the darkest places with the light of his word and of Christ. Okay, always. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to come through this series. I pray that as we do a summary week next week, God, that uh, we would just be blessed by that, by your word and what it teaches us. Lord, uh, allow this time to be fruitful. I pray for the service today that our hearts would be open, God, uh, to your truth. Lord, that we would take your truth and we would consider it, that we would ponder it deeply within our hearts, Lord, and ask ourselves where we can repent and where we can follow you and build God, your kingdom. Allow us not to be Christians who not only tear down, but offer the grace of the gospel which builds. Lord, you call us to tear down the strongholds of the world, to bring under the submission to Christ every ideology which sets itself up against him. God, may we be faithful in that. May we also be faithful in building a positive case for the gospel in the way that we live our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.